Hey, Miles, guess what? What? Sinister. Oh, dude, you're right. We finally get to Mr. Sinister for real this week. In all of his glam, super scientist, baby-stealing, summers-obsessed glory. Uh, So what is up with Sinister and the Summers family, anyway? It's all about building a better anti-apocalypse, right? Well, ostensibly, but it's actually a self-fulfilling time loop. Oh, because Cable's a time traveler? Cable? No, actually, this one was Cyclops' fault. How so? Well, so remember how in the further adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix, Scott and Jean got punted back to the 19th century to stop Sinister from taking over England? Oh yeah, back when he was still Nathaniel Essex and he was experimenting on those proto-Morlocks. Right. Now, at that point, Sinister had never actually met Scott or Jean, but Cyclops kept alluding to their history, which got Sinister curious about the Summers family. So it's literally all Cyclops' fault. On more levels than one. The second half hinges on a guy named Daniel Edge, who'd been one of Sinister's prisoners and test subjects. That name isn't ringing any bells. No, it wouldn't, because, see, after he got away from Sinister, Daniel Edge emigrated to America, and when he arrived, he decided to make a clean break, get a new start, and pick a new name. And the name he chose was the surname of the guy who'd saved his life back in London. Oh, God. So that makes him... Scott's great-great-grandfather, Daniel Summers. What?! Rachel Edden. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 78 of Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, outs, and retcons of our favorite superhero soap opera. And so here we are. We are coming back to Uncanny X-Men. I feel like I should give some kind of a disclaimer this episode. I am on a, a metric ton of allergy medication, and all of it has tiredness and dizziness as listed side effects, and boy howdy is it delivering. We drove over here, and I was getting out of the car at the studio, and that was when I realized that I had forgotten to put on shoes. So you know. that's kind of how today's been going. You had slippers, that's a thing. I did, my slippers have soles, which is I think part of why I was able to overlook not having shoes when like we left our place, but it's been a week. It surely, surely has. Me, I'm doing better medically at least, although I did go to a heavy metal burlesque show last night, and we're recording this episode after recording an episode that's going to come out later, so my voice may die by halfway through. The point being is that Rachel and I are here for all of you listeners because we love you and we love X-Men and we are going to make an awesome episode regardless. Right, and I mean, actually speaking of the double recording, we're doing that all this month because we or Kyle are going to be out for a lot of November. So I feel like the episodes that are October and November are going to be this increasingly desperate sort of escalation of panic and exhaustion. It'll be It's going to be great. It'll be just like the 80s for the X-Men, X-Factor, and the New Mutants. That actually is really appropriate. So this is the sort of our fall of the mutants. Yes, the fall of the Rachel and Miles. Do we at least get new identities in Australia? I mean, I assume so. That's how that works, right? Ooh, or we could start Excalibur. Let's start Excalibur. I vote that. What if we just renamed the podcast after November? (laughs) Problem solved (laughs) and many other problems created. No, none of those things will be happening. So let's give this a try. We are, I believe, back onto X-Men after a lot of X-Factor and New Mutants. Indeed we are. And we're going to be covering Uncanny X-Men number 220 through 224 today, basically taking us right up to where the Fall of the Mutants starts. So let's look at where we're picking up from. This is still a storyline that's coming roughly out of the Mutant Massacre. Um, so when most of the Morlocks were wiped out and a number of the X-Men were critically injured, those were Colossus, Nightcrawler, and Shadowcat. They're all in Muir Island with Myra McTaggart. They're off the team for now. Who are our X-Men coming into this? So the X-Men right now, they remain led by Storm. We also have longtime members Wolverine and Rogue and somewhat new members Psylocke, Dazzler, Longshot, and very new member Havoc. So these are almost kind of pickup X-Men. They are a ragtag bunch who are assembled, you know, on the dregs of the previous team. Well, not the dregs, because Storm and Wolverine were kind of the front and center. Yes. But but just on that small foundation. Actually, it almost reminds me of Giant Size Number 1, where you've got, you know, the one or two core members of the original team, and then sort of the new group that grew out of some crisis or other. Yeah, and we'll see that happen a couple more times. Uh, Generally, not very successfully. There was the time when, like, Sunder and Banshee were running the X-Men. There was the time later on when Cecilia Reyes and Maggot showed up. Those didn't really catch on so well. And there was Jean Grey's pickup group X-Men, who she sent to rescue Professor X when he was in Genosha. Yeah, but for right now, this lineup's going to stick around for quite a while, and it's actually one of my favorite lineups. And we're picking up here from two distinct storylines, one of which predates the Mutant Massacre and one of which comes out of it. The first thing that's important is that Storm has lost her powers. And specifically, she lost her powers because she was shot by some kind of fancy ray gun designed by a gentleman named Forge. 
Yeah, the government had hired Forge to make a mutant depowering gun. It was supposed to be used on Rogue. Storm got shot instead. And so she's been without powers for, in terms of, like, real time, in terms of the time that we, the readers, have been paying attention, around three years. Right. Storm was shot with this, and she was in horrible shape. And she ended up, actually, in Forge's home. And they had a brief romance before she found out that he was responsible for designing the weapon that had depowered her and left. There was also a mess with dire wraiths. We're going to get to that later. So that's what's going on with Storm. The other character who we're going to be following somewhat is Madeline Pryor. Yeah, now Madeline Pryor is Cyclops's wife. After Jean Grey died, well, she didn't really die. I feel like we need to qualify that with estranged at this point pretty consistently. Yes. So after Jean Grey vanished slash died slash was Phoenix slash whatever, he met Madeline Pryor, who looked a lot like her. They got married, they had a baby, and their marriage kind of fell apart. And that was at its worst point when Cyclops found out that Jean Grey was alive and he just sort of left. At which point Madeline said, if you go, don't come back. He didn't. And she promptly disappeared. He tried calling a couple times like the phone had been cut off. He went back to look for her and she was gone. Their kid was gone. A body that was identified as hers had washed up. As far as he knows, she's dead. What she's found now that she's woken up in a hospital in San Francisco, she was a Jane Doe, is that her identity has been erased. There's no record of her having existed before. There's no record of her son, of her marriage, of anything at all. And she calls the only people who she knows to call to help. That's the X-Men. Right, and we'll get to that momentarily. So we're covering five issues this time. It's a little more than we've been doing lately. We're going to go ahead and break it up by topic rather than by how things appear in the issues. So let's go ahead and start with what's going on with the X-Men. Well, what starts going on with the X-Men is that Storm leaves. Storm has been leading the X-Men, and the first thing she does in number 220 is go to Wolverine and say, look, I need to straighten things out. I need to go to Forge. I need to see if I can get my powers back because I've come into my own as a person without them pretty effectively. I've been a really effective leader, but we are being actively hunted by the Marauders right now. We're operating outside the law. We need every edge we can get. I need to swallow my pride, go to Forge, and see if he can find a way to fix this. And now I should say this all comes after a really bizarre intro to the issue where there are these two hawks sort of doing this aerial mating ritual, and one of the hawks has a white mohawk. Now, the careful reader slash listener will remember that this mohawk hawk, this hawk hawk, if you will, which I will, we first saw in the Asgardian Wars crossover when Loki turned Storm into a hawk so that she could fly again. And the hawk had a little white mohawk, which is awesome. Now, this is not actually that hawk. This That, that hawk was a real hawk, or at least Storm in the form of a hawk. This hawk is a metaphor. And because this hawk, the other hawk that it's mating with, starts getting all, like, mechanical and robot and attacks the hawk with the mohawk and kills it. And basically, it's a big metaphor for Forge having depowered Storm and, you know, messed her life up a whole lot. There's now, also some amazingly purple narration in the background. I don't think we're going to read through, but we'll drop it into the as mentioned. Yeah, it's pretty fun. Now, I don't know if this is like a dream sequence or a fantasy or just purely something that Claremont is writing in the comic for the reader. But regardless, it's pretty weird and it's a fun way to open an arc. Anyway, this brings us to Storm and Wolverine. And, you know, so Storm Storm tells Wolverine, I'm going to go off. I'm going to get my powers back. I need you to lead the team. And Wolverine is like, well, I don't want to. I'm not a good leader. You should get like Rogue or Dazzler or somebody who's still got some experience who's not me. We've seen this happen before in this era. I think specifically when Storm sends most of the X-Men off to Muir Island, leaving only her and Wolverine. Yeah, which is interesting because, I mean, admittedly, most of the X-Men are new, but like Rogue, for instance, Rogue's been around for a long, long time. So it's interesting to me that Storm is so adamant in saying, no, Wolverine, you're the only one I trust to lead the team in my absence. I mean, I think a lot of that is because for Storm, Wolverine is an absolutely known quantity. She knows not only that he can, you know, pick up the responsibility here, but can reasonably predict what he's going to do with it. And, you know, you pointed out when we were talking about this stuff this morning that this would be a really good opportunity for someone like Rogue or like Psylocke to rise to the challenge and prove themselves. But given how precarious the X-Men are right now, I mean, I think Storm's making the right choice because when you have a situation like this, you don't want a lucky gamble. You want a known quantity. And there's no one on the team who she knows as well as Wolverine. So we've got groundwork for that bit. Uh, Storm is going to go off. Wolverine's going to lead the team. Meanwhile, Claremont's also laying groundwork for a different group of characters, one we've seen before, at least in parts, and that's the Marauders. These are the guys who perpetrated the mutant massacre. And until now, they've been working for a leader we haven't seen before. This arc is where we get our first glimpse of the one, the only, the glamtastic 
Mr. Sinister. And what a glimpse it is. I mentioned we were going to be skipping around between issues. This is actually the first page of number 221, which is just Mr. Sinister's face taking up the entire panel, complete with his black lipstick lips, his weird diamond on his forehead, his super sharp teeth, and his gloriously written dialogue. You failed me, Marauders, and failure is something Mr. Sinister does not tolerate. Okay, so Mr. Sinister is a really great villain for a number of reasons, and we see two of them on display right here. One of them is that his name is Mr. Sinister. And the other is that he refers to himself by it. Exactly. Now, the reason for him being called Mr. Sinister was actually a plot thread that never went anywhere. Claremont had originally intended for him to be a small child who had sort of created and projected this supervillain persona, hence him having a kind of silly name. Was he actually a small child or was he a small child who didn't age? So was actually much, much older than his physical appearance. There are so many different conflicting versions and false starts for this story. Who knows? The actual source of his name is hilarious, though. Do you know it? No. Okay, so it's from the further adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix when they're going back in time. And so Essex Essex's deal is that he had a son who was born with a large number of birth defects and died in early infancy. And he's been basically experimenting mostly on people. He is basically like evil Darwin written and explained by someone who has a really dubious understanding of what Darwin's actual work was. Sounds about right. But he's doing this largely behind his wife's back. And when she finds out she's pregnant with another baby and she dies in childbirth and as she's dying, he begs for her forgiveness and she curses him and she's something like, you know, you're not the man I married. When I look at you, all I see is something different, something sinister. And when Apocalypse reshapes him and asks him if he wants to be renamed, that's what he pulls sinister from. Wow. And the Mr. is just because it sounds cool. Maybe he's well, been listening the, to a lot of Mr. Mr. He's Mr. Sinister. He's, I mean, I guess that works better than like, you know, Sir Sinister or Lord Sinister or Senior Sinister. Well, those are granted titles. Mr. Sinister is just, you know, a status thing. You don't, you don't, he doesn't have to be knighted. Oh, that's fair. So anyway, Mr. Sinister is berating the marauders who have thus far failed to kill Madeline Pryor. We saw her escape from them a little while back. So a few of the marauders are dead. I think Prism and Riptide were both killed during the mutant massacre. And most of the others are, there are a group whose identities don't really directly matter at this point, except for one of them, and that is Malice. Malice is a malicious, appropriately psychic entity, and she is currently possessing Lorna Dane. That's Polaris, and she is Havoc's long-term girlfriend who disappeared while he was off looking for the X-Men, trying to figure out what was going on with them. Malice came and took her over. Now, the other marauder who's a little bit significant in this scene is actually Sabretooth, who tries to fight back against Sinister, and it does not go well. Now, we've seen Sabretooth before. Sabretooth is a badass. He's as strong and as fast as Wolverine, maybe even a little better. When we talked about the Mutant Massacre, one of the things that we were kind of dismayed about was the fact that the power pack takes Sabretooth out because it really kind of defangs him. But they do that after a fight. And this is such an effective way to establish how powerful Sinister is because this is not a fight scene. This is Sinister entirely casually just completely demolishing Sabretooth, just grabbing him by his throat and basically telling him no and Sabretooth healing. Oh, that's healing with two E's, not with E-A, to clarify. That's really big. And that's really big, especially given what Sabretooth has been built up to. Now, this is, I think, Sinister's only appearance in this arc. He fades back into the background after it, but he's such an intriguing villain, and his design is so unprecedented in X-Men. It's so very, very, very Mark Silvestri. It really is. I mean, like you mentioned, Mr. Sinister's the incarnation of glam, but he's got, like, this sort of banded male armor and this big cape that's like if you took a cape and cut it into a bunch of different strips and then had it be super goth. It's really cool looking. I think there's actually a professional wrestler who has a costume based on Mr. Sinister's. That's a fine plan. I may be misremembering, but I think I remember this. So Sinister sends the Marauders back out to finish off Madeline Pryor before, as he says, she finds shelter with the X-Men or X-Factor. That's interesting that he knows about both the X-Men and X-Factor because while the readers do, no one in the Marvel Universe really seems to know the deal with both of them. To be fair, that is because most of the Marvel Universe has a really, really aggressive narrative someone else's problem field when it comes to X-Factor. I mean, they do. They do all know about X-Factor. They just haven't quite paid attention. The Marvel Universe not knowing about X-Factor to me feels like people in the DCU not recognizing that Clark Kent is Superman. It's just sort of mass hypnosis by narrative convenience. I think so, yeah. Because someone is going to um actually me, yes, I know there are narrative justifications for why people don't recognize that Clark Kent is Superman, and they're dumb. So there. So yeah, we have the Wolverine thing set in motion, the Storm thing set in motion, the Marauders thing set in motion, so where are the X-Men? Madeline is able to get in touch with Wolverine, and he gathers the rest of the X-Men, except for Magneto, who's still hanging out, taking care of the school and running the New Mutants, to San Francisco to come find her in the hospital where she is. 
At the same time, the marauders are there to track her down, and inevitably, they clash in a massive city-spanning fight because wrecking San Francisco is what the X-Men do second best after wrecking New York. Specifically wrecking the X-Mansion. And so, yeah, there's this giant fight, and I mean, this has been foreshadowed for a while. The last time the X-Men and the Marauders fully fought like this was the Mutant Massacre, so it's kind of a big deal. They've really been living in fear of the Marauders up until this point. And they've got a significant edge here, and that significant edge himself has a number of significant edges, and that is Longshot. Because Longshot has luck powers. Things just work for him as long as he feels like he's doing the right thing. And so, you know, he's occasionally accidentally falling off buildings or slipping or jumping exactly the right way that things just work out okay. Yeah, he's uh, Longshot is so much fun. We've seen his luck powers in action before, but watching him gradually relearn to weaponize them is fun and fascinating in this era. So what the X-Men don't know, because they've faced most of the Marauders before... They don't know about Polaris. They don't know about Malice. This is the first time that they find out that she's with the Marauders. And at first, they don't even realize that she's possessed. They think she's just somehow become a villain suddenly. Now, this is a big deal because Polaris and Havoc have been romantically involved and have known each other pretty much since their introductions. So needless to say, this is rather a blow to Havoc that his partner has turned into a cruel, horrible supervillain. Well, it's a blow to all of them. I mean, it's probably worst for Havoc, but Lorna's been running around on and off with the X-Men since the Silver Age. Like, they go really far back. Yeah, this new Lorna, who we the readers know is really possessed by malice, wastes no time in doing her best to murder the X-Men, and specifically to murder Madeline Pryor once the X-Men spirit her out of the hospital. Yeah, and it sucks so hard to be the X-Men at this point. The angry narration is back for the first time in a pretty long time, I think. Yeah, well, it's sort of a new style of angry narration. You know, we're in a new city, we have a new lineup, so let's have a new angry Claremontian narrator. Well, this one is more an angry commentator. Not even angry, this one's more a commentator. Life's tough when you're a mutant, bad enough to be born with parahuman powers that make you stand out from the crowd. A few noble-hearted lunatics go and make things even worse for themselves by hooking up with this team of self-styled heroes who call themselves the X-Men, and figure it's their job to get in the way of every bad guy worth the name who wants to rule the world or otherwise pursue a violently antisocial career. And because of who they are, their good deeds rarely win them any respect or even thanks, but instead, far more often than not, only heartbreak. I love it. I feel like someone's telling this from a very smoky bar, or maybe it's a medieval D&D-style bard who happens to have a giant cigar. I'm not sure. There's, there's, there's tobacco smoke involved regardless. You know, I actually have a lot of trouble with the narration in this arc. Oh, yeah? Yeah. I feel like a lot of the time when Claremont's narrating, it's a good counterpoint to the action. Here, it feels overwhelmingly redundant. Interesting. It gets in the way of the storytelling for me. Again, I can't tell if this is a byproduct of the context of reading this on, you know, medication that, among other things, affects the way I can track text. But yeah, here it, it really bugs me throughout this arc. It feels overly purple and it feels, again, overly redundant. You know, thought balloons where characters are describing what's happening on the page at the same time very clearly. Interesting, interesting. Well, regardless, what happens here is that Polaris gets a bunch of scrap metal from nearby areas and tangles Rogue and Madeline in it and tries to bury them at the bottom of the sea to drown them. I really like what happens here because Dazzler goes after them. She actually uses one of Longshot's grappling hooks to lasso onto the big metal thing. And Dazzler's been built up prior to this in this story and in previous stories, as a very reluctant team player. Dazzler wants to be the star of the show. She really doesn't trust the X-Men, and she really, really doesn't trust her like Rogue. Yeah, I mean, Rogue used to be a supervillain, and she and Dazzler tangled on more than one occasion. So, to some extent, this is the Dazzler learns about teamwork story, which happens like every three arcs, because she immediately forgets again. She's got a very short attention span. Yeah, she's distracted by bright things, which when your power involves lights is a pretty big liability. I think it's all the rock music. I think that's the problem. The rock Do music. Do you think it's the roller skates, too? I think it's the roller skates and the rock music and the baggy pants, and she should get off my lawn. Wait, but she doesn't even do rock music. She's disco. No, no, no. These days it's rock. Uh, later on, they describe it as raw and raunchy rock and roll, which is amazing alliteration. I thought that was Lila Cheney's thing. Well, apparently Dazzler, since she worked with Lila Cheney, now she likes raw and raunchy rock and roll. Go Dazzler. Right. Evolve your style. I'm just saying. All right. So, <laughs> so Dazzler does manage to rescue both of them, but it's a really close fight and it's a really miserable fight. One of the things I like about it, though, man, I go back and go back and go back to how much I like Madeline Pryor and how bummed I am about the direction she's going to go. And this just drives that home even further because, man, even like shot in the hospital, being attacked by people who are way superpowered when she is not, 
Madeline Pryor is no one's goddamn damsel in distress. Yeah, she gets in a couple of really good punches, and she doesn't give up. She's really brave and scrappy, and that's awesome. She actually reminds me of Psylocke when Psylocke first joined the X-Men and uh, fight Sabretooth. I can definitely, definitely see that. So this is a protracted fight, and it takes place across multiple issues and across multiple settings. And it's got some great moments in it. There's one bit where Dazzler, who has just rescued first Madeline and then Rogue from this underwater tangle of metal, is entirely drained and her powers charge on sound and she basically sucks all of the sound from the large public beach that they're at and everyone panics and it's sort of shown as an anti-mutant panic but honestly i think it's a really reasonable reaction under the circumstances it is and i love the way sylvester puts these panels together because you see a bunch of people like freaking out and running away with empty speech balloons coming from their faces and then you see dazzler surrounded by speech balloons with a bunch of different panicked phrases in them it's a cool visualization well and you see the text start to reappear and sort of fade into the speech balloons when characters are farther away or out as they're coming closer. That happens with the X-Men when they're starting to approach her. Yes, this is how you do comics right, people. You do things that only comics can do. I love it because it's a really, really fun way of playing with a very non-visual idea, with sound in a visual medium. And when you've got a character whose powers are based around that, you get some opportunities for really, really creative storytelling. You see that around Claw, too, sometimes. Totally, yeah. So, other cool stuff in the fight. At one point, the X-Men, using Psylocke's telepathy, managed to temporarily dispossess, I guess, Polaris of Malice. They have Polaris's personality come through for a moment and freak out at what's going on. And that's, you know, an important plot thing or whatever, because now they know she's Malice. But more importantly, we see Harpoon, who's one of the Marauders, think to himself, they're reeling like lubbers caught on the open sea at the height of a winter gale. Like, lubbers? Okay. And then later on, when he's not sure what to do with Polaris since she's leading the team, but she is chief and Harpoon is blood sworn to obey. So like, Harpoon, are you a cartoonish pirate or are you a somewhat offensively stereotypical Inuit? Are, are you both? Are I, don't you see, I don't see why he can't be both, Miles. Okay. I feel like the idea that those can't be intersecting stereotypes. Well, obviously, I mean, Harpoon is actively disproving it. I just love the fact that his name is Harpoon and his weapon is regularly referred to in other terms, despite the fact that it is also clearly a Harpoon. Yes, he's pretty great. We love Harpoon. I know he's like a merciless killer who's a total sadist and enjoys murder, but he's fun. You know, the Marauders are all pretty fun, actually. They kind of I, are. I really love Arclight. I love that Scalp Hunter and Arclight have this sort of like quiet, subtle romance between them. I can't blame either of them. They're both pretty awesome. I mean, yeah, they are all terrible people, but they're entertaining, terrible people. And the great thing about comic books is they're all fictional. Another significant fight we get and a significant window involves a relationship that's been gradually building over a number of appearances and it has been teased as more and more than it appears to be on the surface and that is Wolverine and Sabretooth. At one point, Longshot and Wolverine are uh, coincidentally fighting the three marauders whose names start with S, Scalphunter, Scrambler, and Sabretooth. I doubt that's significant. I like that you noticed that though. I noticed these things. I don't know. It's weird. And Scrambler messes with Wolverine's powers. That's what Scrambler does. He either screws up or just temporarily disables people's powers. And so Sabretooth is like figuring Wolverine's a sitting duck and then breaks his hand, punching Wolverine in the face, forgetting he has an adamantium skeleton. And Wolverine very quickly shows that he's an immense badass even without his healing powers and just damn near guts Sabretooth and throws him at Scrambler, hoping that will depower Sabretooth's own healing power. This specific fight is great. Because it's a perfect frozen and amber moment of two plot points that were later retconned. The first is Wolverine's claws, because he can still use them with his powers gone. They were not originally supposed to be part of his mutation. They were supposed to be prosthetic. Exactly. The second one is Sabretooth and Wolverine's origin story. At this point, the plan, I believe, was still for Sabretooth to eventually be revealed as Wolverine's father. And he's been, you know, playing with that and sort of teasing that a little bit. And in this fight, he actually specifically calls Wolverine my boy. And uh, no, it turns out that's just him being an affectionate old man, I guess. I don't even know. Yeah. I wish he said my boy. That would be funnier. Well, that's why I see that specifically as teasing the father thing, because that's not a figure of speech that Sabretooth uses. Totally. Yeah. And so, yeah, as all this is going on, Longshot just randomly falls off the bridge and because of his luck powers, finds the almost drowning Madeline Pryor. But the most important thing that happens in the entire fight is what happens at the very end, which is the inevitable confrontation between the malice-possessed Polaris and Havoc. It's really sad. You know how we said earlier that it sucks nonstop and horribly to be Havoc at this point? Really Mm -hmm. kind of always? Mm -hmm. Yeah, man, it just keeps on getting worse and worse and worse, and it's going to keep getting worse? 
And so, yeah, Polaris, at this point, Havoc knows that she's possessed, but she's like, hey, you'd better kill me or else I'm going to go and do horrible things. You'll probably never get a better shot. So do it now. And with tears streaming down his face, he blasts her with his plasma blasts. Which, and it accomplishes nothing. Because she's very heavily shielded. So she's like, nice try, lover, but my shields can handle even your best shot. Still, it's the thought that counts. You failed to kill me. What matters is you tried. I mean, damn, lady. Malice is so mean. I mean, it is right there in her name. Yeah, but like, man. I know. That's really, really, really gratuitously harsh. So that's what's going on with the X-Men and the Marauders and Madeline Pryor. Meanwhile, there's another arc that's taking place simultaneously, and that is around Storm. Yeah, so she left to go try to find Forge to see if there was a way to restore her mutant powers. So she heads to the last place that she saw him, which is Eagle Plaza, which is a giant technologically advanced skyscraper where they had their brief and ill-fated romance. We should talk here a little bit about both that story and Forge as a character. Right. So we got to know Forge leading up to the Barry Windsor Smith drawn issue called Life Death, but that's where we get to know him best. That's also where the dynamic between Storm and Forge is best defined and described. So Forge is a mutant. His powers relate to technology. He's a maker. He's a tinkerer. He can create these phenomenal inventions. His penthouse, you know, we mentioned Eagle Plaza, is largely illusory. It's this massive solid light hologram setup where he can basically alter the environment to pretty much anything. It's got amazing built-in defenses. That's going to become relevant later. Forge is Cheyenne and has some background specifically in the mystical tradition. He's supposed to be some kind of shaman. He used those powers in the Vietnam War and got a lot of people killed in the process and lost a hand and a leg. And his relationship to his heritage from there out became extremely fraught and complicated. Yeah, he basically swore off not only any sort of mysticism, but anything to do with his Cheyenne heritage in general. Now, there's another character we've seen named Naze, who is sort of his old mentor. Naze is also Native American, and Naze is very much into the mysticism stuff. And Naze is not exactly himself anymore. The last time we were at Eagle Plaza, the last time we saw Forge, he and Storm were attacked by something called Dire Wraiths. The Dire Wraiths are monsters from Rom Space Knight, and we went into these guys in a fair lot of detail in, in I believe, episode 31. This is Chekhov's Raygun. We'll link to that in the As Mentioned if you want to go back and uh, brush up on your Dire Wraiths. But they possess people, they take over their bodies, and they were mostly taken out, but unbeknownst to any of the rest of the characters, one of them managed to possess Naze toward the end of that story. Yes. And then as that happened, this weird mystical being called the Adversary, this sort of immensely powerful spirit, managed to itself take over the taken over slash replaced Naze. So would you say that he was repossessed? I would in fact say that he was repossessed. So what is the deal with the adversary? Because I am having a lot of trouble wrapping my head around this one. So at this point, we don't really know what the deal with the adversary was. We know that Naze was trying to commune with powerful entities in order to stop the dire wraiths. And apparently something went wrong and something evil and very powerful got into him and basically stayed dormant for three years as the reader reckons. Like Storm lost her powers three years ago, and Naze was possessed slash replaced by the adversary three years ago. We've talked about the Claremont long burn. You don't get much long burner than this. Well, we're going to find out later, and I think the impression we're going to get is that Naze possessed by the adversary has actually been pretty busy for the last three years, and so has Forge. Yes, indeed. But he hasn't been home because when Storm goes to Eagle Plaza to find him, what she discovers is an abandoned sanctum. Yeah, it's all half destroyed. Stuff is scattered around. And it's genuinely kind of sad because this place was a thing of beauty, admittedly very Spartan, non-natural beauty, but beauty nonetheless. And now it's just echoes. It's just ghosts. Well, it's echoes and it's got a new layer of echoes because what it speaks to is Forge's guilt and obsession over Storm. There are holographic projectors, and we saw before that he's got sections of the house that just replay obsessively scenes from his past, mostly from the Vietnam War. Now it's also replaying scenes from life death of him and Storm, and seeing Storm wandering through that and interacting with those holograms. And also just seeing Sylvester and Green do Windsor Smith is really, really cool. It's really poignant. It's a little bit creepy, but mostly it's just deeply, deeply sad. It is, yeah. 
And so as Storm keeps wandering through this, she wanders into another thing we've seen in Life Death, which is a vision of the Vietnam War when Forge used his magic and summoned a bunch of demons and things did not go well. At the same time, Forge's own voice, kind of ragged and raw over the PA, comes out telling whoever this intruder is to either leave or die. Storm does neither, and eventually she finds Forge wired into a huge machine, apparently dying. He's somehow plugged himself into this basically just to live out his obsession with Storm. She turns off the defenses and he tries to stop her. And then it turns out that this Forge, too, is actually an illusion. He's a hologram. Yeah, and apparently what really happened is that Naze, who was around here, saw that Storm was coming and turned on the holograms to essentially test her. That's a total dick move. Well, you know, Naze is in fact a total dick. Now, Storm doesn't know nearly how much because she doesn't know about the adversary and the line he feeds her, which is basically that he's worried that Forge, having abandoned his mystical duties, has been taken over by the adversary, is utter bullshit, but also something that she completely believes because the Naze she met was a really good dude. Well, and she is primed to mistrust Forge after what she went through in Life Death. Exactly. Now, Storm refuses to help. She's like, hey, this is not my problem. I have responsibilities at home. And that's when Naze says, I saved your life. I'm calling in that debt. I need your help, Aurora. He plays her so spectacularly during this arc. Naze, possessed Naze even, is such an appealing character that even when you see the asides of him grinning at the camera and going creepy, you still kind of want to believe in him. Like he's this great sort of wry, funny, but warm, interesting, and really distinct character. And It's very, very hard not to catch yourself rooting for him when you're reading this. Absolutely, because we're seeing him as Storm sees him, with the exception of just a few panels here and there. And so they head off to the Grand Canyon. Once she agrees to come with him, they sort of start this vision quest. Like, you know, they abandon their car, and they're just living on what they can hunt and stuff like that. And when they're in the Grand Canyon, uh, Naze is thinking to himself about how this all started. Now, this is kind of weird, and I had to look it up, but apparently the reason the adversary was able to get into, you know, Earth, aside from Naze's ritual back during Life Death, was that in an old issue of Doctor Strange, the Dread Dormammu broke through uh, from the center of the Earth to open a portal from the Dark Dimension, and that basically killed the borders in this place between the various mystical realms and the material realm, or so I understand it. Whoops. Yeah. Yeah, they keep wandering around, they keep going on their vision quest. And Naze starts kind of flirting with Storm over the course of all of this. And it's working. Yeah. I mean, he's going the, well, if you'd been my woman, I would have treated you better route, which is kind of douchey, but, you know, dude sells it. I keep on thinking every time I read his dialogue, like, I always hear it in Sam Elliott's voice, which I think is also part of why I have trouble disliking him, because he comes off as the Sam Elliott character, as the sort of grizzled wry, maybe a little bit older than the love interest, but cool enough that it's totally going to go somewhere and it's not going to feel weird. Right. So he'd be played, like, in a movie by maybe the Native American equivalent of Sam Elliott? No, I feel like based on the way Hollywood tends to work, he'd just be played by Sam Elliott and we'd all feel really uncomfortable about it. Oh, yeah, that would be super weird. Yeah, it's unfortunate. So as they continue, they're actually attacked because, you know, they've been wandering around for long enough that the DM has rolled up a random encounter on the random encounter dice. They're not initially attacked, actually. They are approached by an attractive young woman who is fleeing a monster or claims to be. Yes. And very quickly, we learn that she's not fleeing a monster. She is, in fact, one of the eye killers. Oh, my God. I want to talk about the eye killers. I did so much research on the eye killers. Yeah, there's a lot to be said about the eye killers. So the eye killers are this woman and her brother, and they turn into giant monsters with the tails of snakes and the heads of owls and the arms of bears. And we figured they had to be based on something. So we did some research and then we did some more research and we had a horrible time turning something up. So we were looking through a bunch of Cheyenne legends, figuring it must be based there. And then we finally ended up asking Dr. Internet for assistance. And thanks to a number of folks on Twitter and Facebook and a number of folklorists we know, we discovered that the eye killers are in fact actual mythic figures. They are Navajo. And they have the best origin story ever. And I would like to digress and discuss this. It is absolutely and totally irrelevant to the comic. For reasons that will become obvious, it will never actually come up in an X-Men comic. But oh my god. All right, uh, lay it on me. So there are a number of cycles of Navajo myth revolving around twins, specifically this pair called the Hero Twins, who fight a lot of monsters. And among the monsters they fight are the Eye Killers. The Eye Killers are also twins. 
I found a number of sources. The primary one is Navajo Religion, A Study of Symbolism by Gladys Amanda Reichert, and a number of other books cite it, so I sort of keep going back to that. And according to Reichert, the eye killers, they were conceived when a chief's daughter masturbated with a magical sour cactus. Why would you do that? I don't know. This is a bad idea on so many levels. And that's the other thing is like, I feel like it's got sort of a feel of a cautionary tale, but I feel like don't masturbate with a cactus is not something you need to add demons to to make it a cautionary tale. Like it's <laughs> it's kind of right there in the description. Wow. I mean, I, I guess we probably couldn't get away with having this episode title be don't masturbate with a cactus, but I wish we could. I mean, we could. We're technically an adult rated podcast. So there we go. Listeners, you heard it here first. Don't masturbate with a cactus. Now, what's really interesting is that the eye killer's form kind of varies, but a number of elements from the original iKillers myth work their way into the iKillers as they appear in this comic. And they've appeared in Doctor Strange, too, actually. Uh, Kurt Busiek let us know that they show up in Chris Claremont's Doctor Strange run as well. But they've also varied somewhat from their original form. Originally, they appear mostly as humanoid. They show up as an old couple with many children. They eventually become cacti after Monster Slayer, who's one of the hero twins, defeats them. Claremont's eye killers diverge fairly significantly from the originals. They've got one significant thing in common, not the cactus story. Well, presumably, we don't actually know. They might have the cactus story in common. <laughs> but that is that they can shoot lightning from their eyes. Now, the original eye killers can also just kill things by staring really hard at them, which I think is kind of great. Oh, man. Right. And they also have a common weakness, and that is fire. And that, in fact, is how Storm ends up killing them. Well, also a giant knife that she carries with her. But fire is what reveals their true forms and renders them vulnerable. Now, these guys, according to Naze, are servants of are working for the adversary. Storm sees them as proof that Forge's corruption is spreading. What we as the reader can tell is that Naze is basically using them as sacrificial pawns to up the stakes. Exactly. And man, dedicated, bloody, with fire in the background, Aurora Monroe in her current incarnation with the Mohawk. I gotta say, this is some of the coolest art I've ever seen of Storm on this page. I want this yeah, on the side of a literally van. Literally every panel of Storm in this part of the story looks like a metal album cover. It really does. Storm is so metal. I mean, all the time, but especially right here. So, yes, they, you know, continue wandering off. Storm ends up catching a fish in her hands like a bear because, you know, that's it's what you so do. great. This ties into my deep-seated hope that there is a world where all the X-Men can just randomly turn into bears, as prompted by Thunderbird and Spider-Man and his amazing friends. Because as longtime listeners may recall, Thunderbird can just randomly fucking turn into a bear for no reason in that show. Yes. Man, we're going for the deep cuts today. Bears. Deep yes. bears. They've and got big claws. And yeah, so the next kind of manipulation Naze does is that he sort of, as he gets closer to Forge, claims that Forge is sapping his power away, that he's exhausted, that he's hurting from the venom that got into his wounds from the battle. And to fix this, he has Storm brew up this potion and then has her drink some of it too. And it's not a healing potion. It's basically just straight up hallucinogen. Yeah, so she like fights a giant bear and a giant snake in this blizzard in the middle of the summer. And as she tries to get back to Naze, she sees that Vietnam vision from before and realizes that Forge actually did that in Vietnam. She finally puts the pieces together and realizes that he summoned demons in Vietnam to protect himself and or his friends, that he's got that dark mysticism within him. Forge appears in this, he challenges her, he grabs her, and as he grabs her hand, it turns into machinery, it turns into metal like his, in a way that actually reminds me a lot of the techno-organic virus, and Storm kills him, and surprise, it was all a dream. So this basically is like a reverse Yoda, which now that I think about it, sounds like a weird sex move. But yeah, it's- Adoy? Uh, no, no, no. The, well, no, Adoy is what reverse Yoda would be. Well, anyway, it's like that scene in Empire where Yoda has Luke go into the cave and he sees Vader and he kills him and it's a bad plan and sort of a cautionary tale. Except it's the opposite of that because Naze has Storm kill Forge and makes it look like that was a really necessary good thing. He's just forging her into this sharper and sharper blade to kill his opponent. Forging? Yeah, well, you know. So they continue on in their journey as Naze describes the adversary more. And the way he describes him is as this ridiculously powerful being, this being that begins and ends the world, that just creates endless cycles of existence to try to make the perfect world, this sort of chaos trickster god who just plays with the world because it's fun. And I gotta say, there are a lot of powerful cosmic forces in Marvel, but if Naze, which is to say the adversary, is describing the adversary correctly, he's easily up there with the most powerful of them. 
And again, Aurora with this very, very heightened sense of what the stakes are, and also with bits of her vision starting to seep into reality. It's summer, but suddenly there's a snowstorm starting outside, and it's becoming more and more obvious what they're actually doing is starting to match what she saw in the vision. And so her expectation, she's pretty much decided at this point that Forge has probably been irrevocably corrupted. She has basically been set up such that she's going up expecting to need to kill him. Exactly. So, as all of those terrible things are going on, the X-Men have relocated. They've actually relocated to Alcatraz, the famous abandoned prison, which I think is awesome. Yeah, they're going to be there again much, much later. I find it really cool how much the more recent X-Men in San Francisco stories and their tone echo this specific one. In particular, the X-Men as basically kind of setting up as San Francisco's friendly neighborhood superheroes. Totally. Yeah, that, that's addressed way later in the early 2010s. Yeah. And so a lot of things happen here, but the scene I really, really enjoy is Madeline Pryor and Alex Summers meeting and commiserating about how freaking terrible their lives are. And I actually, this is They're a lot of- They're so terrible. So terrible. Alex being out on a jog sees Madeline Pryor at the top of a cliff, possibly attempting to kill herself. Yeah, she's just at the edge of the cliff. He doesn't really have any evidence that she's about to jump, but he freaks out anyway, which I feel like is pretty understandable given how his life's been going. If a thing can go wrong, it seems relatively likely to. And Madeline is really frustrated because, you know, she has had her life pulled out from under her repeatedly. She thought that she'd found someone, you know, she got married, she had a kid, and that's disappeared as she was starting to rebuild after that. You know, her child was taken, her entire identity was effectively erased. And she's someone who has always prided herself on being extremely self-sufficient. And right now, she has to stay with the X-Men or the Marauders are going to find her and kill her. She is dependent and she's stuck and she hates it. And at the same time, Havoc is just beating himself up. I mean, he didn't want to join the X-Men in the first place. He never wanted to be a superhero. He just wanted to work on his PhD, which, you know, has not worked out so well. And so now that his partner has been possessed, now that he's learned that she forced him to learn that he would kill her if necessary, he is torn the hell apart. But I do really love this bit. I mean, she says, I loved and trusted your brother and he let me down. He wasn't there when his family needed him. I'll never forgive that. And I'll never let myself become so vulnerable again. That doesn't mean you have to stand alone. If the X-Men is anything, it's a family. I've only just begun to realize that we're strong because we stand by each other. That way, we can survive anything. That way, no matter what, we'll win. You sure? Bet my life on it. Then shum, so will I. And thus launches one of X-Men's more uncomfortable quasi-incestuous relationships. But here's the thing that I love. They're going in very different directions with this, and Havoc has no idea because Madeline's I will not rely on anyone else thing. She sticks with that. Havoc thinks that what this means is going to be teamwork. What it actually means is a deal with demons. Yeah, and it's such a shame because, man, Madeline... She gets so close to happiness so many times, and she's such a sympathetic character, and I just want her to be okay. Well, and she gets so close to self-determination so many times. You know, we talked about Longshot as this really fundamentally tragic character because he's the eternal optimist who never wins. Madeline is really similar to me because she is the character to whom independence and self-determination mean everything and who always loses both of those things. Her entire life is going to have turned out to have been basically a complicated setup of dominoes clicked to fall. She exists as a minor player in someone else's scheme. And even when she tries to rise above that, even when she says, screw this, I'm going to go evil, I'm going to destroy the world before it can take me down, she still doesn't really get to. She's still just locked in by that destiny. Now, you mentioned the tragedy of Longshot, and that's actually one of my favorite scenes we get around here. A little bit later, Longshot and Havoc having gone to see a movie, specifically Raiders of the Lost Temple. And if that sounds familiar, that's the movie that Longshot was a stunt double in when he met Ricochet Rita back in his own miniseries, before his mind was wiped yet again. And Longshot says, There was a stuntman in the movie with the same name as me, and a girl who had the neatest name ever, Ricochet Rita. Do you think we could maybe meet them sometime and be friends? Right in the feels. We got confirmation from Anne Nascenti. This was before Ricochet Rita, we knew, got corrupted and turned into Spiral. But even without that extra layer of tragedy, this is still rough, man. This is rough. Now, speaking of blasts from the past, we find out that the X-Men are not really safe in San Francisco for reasons that go beyond the Marauders. There's a federal task force looking for them, and that is Freedom Force. And Freedom Force has recently acquired several new members. 
Guess who it is? It's the murder grandpas. I love you, murder grandpas. Your grandpas who murder. These are three World War II era heroes who basically had a setup that they described as doing social good, but was basically a really complicated rationalization for hunting humans for sport. And so they were arrested the last time we saw them. Now, they've had their prison sentences commuted, provided they join Freedom Force, which is the government's group of mutants who basically are working for them and are mostly working off various criminal pasts. Yeah, aside from the murder grandpas, I believe all of them are former members of the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. So there's Pyro, Blob, Mystique, Destiny, and Spiral. And they have lost Spider-Woman since we last saw them. I think she's left the team. Oh, they also have Avalanche. We see oh, they him, do have Avalanche, We see him yeah. gardening at one point. Oh, um, that's nice. But yeah, there's a scream, and it turns out to be Destiny because she periodically uses her precognitive powers to check on Rogue. Her, God, she's such a mom. Her and Mystique's foster daughter, just to make sure she's okay. And what she's just discovered is that Rogue doesn't have a future, that every timeline she looks at, Rogue and the X-Men are all going to die in Dallas, Texas. Well, shit. One of the things I love, and this is just a quick aside, is that Destiny can't actually check and see if Rogue is okay. She can only check and see if she's going to be okay. You know, she doesn't have telepathy. She has precognition. So she can literally only check on Rogue in the future. Wow, that's a strange mom skill to have. It is useful, though. And so Mystique, of course, goes to find Rogue and tries to get her to leave the X-Men, just exhorts her to come with her to where it's safe so she doesn't, you know, fall into this dark path. Rogue, of course, refuses because Rogue is very loyal to her new team, her new family. But she does tell the X-Men and they talk about what to do. Now, Destiny said when she talked to Rogue that Storm was apparently the key to all of this. They know that Storm has gone off to find Forge and Wolverine's like, well... I want to look for her, because if she's at the center of all this, if she's in danger, I want to be there by her side. If any of you want to back out now, I won't hold it against you, because apparently if we go there, we're all going to die. It's the X-Men. None of them are going to back out. Not even Madeline Pryor. Not even Dazzler. I feel like Dazzler would be more likely to than Madeline at this point. It's true. But Madeline Pryor insists on coming with them. And after all she's been through, staying with the people who have taken her in, who are the only connection she has to her old life at this point, I don't blame her. And that also fits her personality very well. Now, they're going off in search of Storm, whom they've been unable to track down. That's because Storm is still in Wyoming and she is in the shady area between the spirit world and the real world, clawing her way up a cliff to get to Forge. Yeah, Naze hasn't been able to continue on any longer. He's too weak. His powers are too beaten down by proximity to Forge, or so he claims. And so she just starts climbing this mountain. The weather's gotten completely nuts. All these demons have started appearing, which all talk like actors at a Ren Fair. Did you notice that? I did not, but in retrospect, you are absolutely right. They really do. Yeah, it's really cheesy. Like, I keep expecting them to offer her an overpriced turkey leg or something. Let's pet the dead camel. <laughs> oh, man, yes. And so, yeah, she fights her way through them, being a total freaking badass, because it's just her with a giant knife, no mutant powers, nothing like that, cutting her way through hordes of demons with Forge in the distance on top of a mountain, this hole in the sky rent above him, light glowing all around him. The thing we mentioned about everything looking like a metal album cover? Yeah, that. Exactly that. There's also black lightning. And Storm sees this, and she sees it as the realization of her vision. She claws her way to Forge, and she stabs him in the heart, and that's when she finds out that she was very very mistaken. You're wrong. I was trying to close the gate, not destroy the world, Storm, but save it. Whoops. And so the demons keep pursuing them. I mean, at this point, Forge can't hold them at bay because he done got stabbed and they just fall off the cliff together and are quickly consumed by this flash of light and pulled into the hole in the sky as they apologize to each other, Storm saying, I was wrong. You were tricked. Forgive me. Always. Aww. So that's where we leave off, save for good old Naze slash the adversary watching from below. You played your part to perfection, Windrider. You and Forge were the only two capable of stopping me, and with you both gone, the world is mine. For as long as it lasts. So yeah, that is suitably apocalyptic and cliffhangery leading into Fall of the Mutants. Now, this is a weird story. The idea that this giant X-Men villain is a Native American spirit that's tied mostly to a minor character that only appeared briefly, that being Forge. A strange way to do it, but I gotta say, it's also pretty cool. And we're gonna see this continue to play out in Fall of the Mutants, but for now, you've got questions. Jack Laser asks on Tumblr, I was wondering if either or both of you generally call the X-Men by codenames or by their real names. I know it's always Scott, Gene, Kitty for me, but I tend to stick with codenames like Storm, Gambit, and Beast. I'm not sure what it means exactly, but I was just wondering if you or other X-Fans experience the same thing. 
So the only place where I'm actually really formal about this is in written stuff. And there I do actually have a system, which is basically that characters get code names when I'm discussing them acting in their superhero identities or in costumes or in their roles relative to the X-Men. And then I use their normal names when I'm talking about, you know, their personal lives. And I don't do that 100% consistently, but I use that as a general guideline in, for example, the evolution recaps. I do that too. But I also find that I fall into the same tendency as Jack Laser, which is certain characters, by default, I tend toward using their code names more and other characters, I tend toward using their first names more. Yeah. Some of it is convenience, you know, which is shorter. Some of it is how they get referred to more often in the comic. Yeah. So like, for instance, Scott and Jean, they're involved in a lot of melodrama. And so instead of them being Cyclops or Marvel Girl, I just, you know, can't get over the fact that it's always Scott, Gene, Scott, Gene, Scott, Gene, Chief McCloud. Like, it's the same for Kitty, whereas you have characters like, say, Colossus or characters like Beast, who that happens a little bit less with. And so for them, it's more code names. You know, there's another difference, too, that seems like an even more significant one for me, which is characters who are more or less defined or more or less identify with their superhero personas. Oh, yeah, that makes perfect sense. So, like, Storm is Storm. She's always Storm. When she doesn't have powers, she's still Storm. Mm-hmm. And Scott and Jean are just, you know, they're, they're Scott and Jean a lot of the time. Like the definitive characteristics that go with them aren't so much the costumes. Yeah, or Kitty, for example. And Kitty's also had like a zillion code names. So there's that. There is that. Dane Isherwood asks in the comments on rachelandmiles.com, I'm currently working on a menswear fashion collection inspired by the women of the X-Men universe. That is so awesome. I am really excited by this. Sorry, going on. I'm fascinated, especially with Dazzler's recent character redesign, both aesthetically and from a story perspective. Are there other examples of X-Women undergoing dramatic aesthetic transformations in terms of their wardrobe that you can point me towards? And what's your take on the Dazzler makeover? Oh, man, there are so many examples. So the ones that first jumped out at me, I mean, the big one, of course, is when Storm goes punk when she's in Japan, when she meets Yukio, she gets the mohawk and the leather clothing. Like, that's huge. Because before, she had this very Dave Cockrum, very, like, African goddess, if African goddesses were strange superheroes designed by Dave Cockrum, look, and she just becomes a completely different character visually that symbolizes a huge transition personality-wise. We also have, on the more uncomfortable side, Psylocke casually wearing more Japanese clothing like kimonos and such after she has the body swap with Quanan, who is from Japan, or at least some nebulous part of Asia, depending on which part of the storyline you're reading. Less uncomfortably, there's Shadowcat getting a much darker look after the Kitty Pride and Wolverine miniseries, looking a little bit more ninja. There's Rachel Summers changing her look after she comes back from the Mojoverse and comes into Excalibur. She looks a lot more confident after that, and a lot less like she just got out of an aerobics class, for instance. And there's also Siren becoming Morrigan in X-Factor much, much, much later, but that's more story-based. There's also Emma Frost switching from white to black recently, but I cannot believe that you forgot the biggest one. Oh, yeah? Phoenix. I guess I was thinking more casual clothing, but yeah, if we're talking Jean Grey going costume, from Marvel Girl to Phoenix. Yeah. And Phoenix to Dark Phoenix. Like, it's not casual clothing, but it is costume design, and it's costume design that reflects a narrative change. And also, I mean, just some of the best costume designing in superhero comics ever. You're totally right. Now, as for Dazzler, and if anybody's not familiar with what Dana Sherwood is referring to, Dazzler, when she found out that she'd been kept unconscious and being used to harvest mutant growth hormone by Mystique, who had taken over her role in S.H.I.E.L.D., she got really angry after that, understandably, and got this sort of like emo look, I guess, for lack of a better way of describing it. Kind of, somewhere between emo and angry punk. It is very sharp looking and it's something that was really, really polarizing. People seem to really either really love or really hate it. I liked it. I mean, I like the aesthetic of it, but I feel like Dazzler is someone who would make a change that dramatic. I think that's totally in keeping with the character. Well, she's also a character that has really always changed with the times. I mean, she's always been a pop musician. And while, you know, not that long has passed in comics since she was first introduced to now, the fact is there have been decades and decades of comics about that. And so she started out very, very disco, and she kind of changed to fit each genre. Like, I remember for a while, not too long ago, she was modeled after the pop star Pink. And so having her change her look again to almost a different genre of music, I'm totally down with that. I could totally see Dazzler like thinking of her life in those terms, too. Oh, absolutely. Like codifying it in terms of genres or eras or types of music. And yeah, so that for me fits really well. And I also think it's just a sharp looking design. Oh, Alison Blair, never change by always changing. All right. Now, our podcast is ad free and listener supported. And one of the rewards that people who support us at a certain level get is thanks and a variety of fictional voices. So I'm going to turn it over to the angry Claremontian narrator. You're a good man, Ethan Teller. And as a good man, you look for the best in others. And so you never suspected Chris Morris might lead you astray. That misplaced trust will cost you dearly. Body and soul. 
And with that, we are out of time. Rachel and Miles explain the X-Men is recorded in Portland, Oregon and produced by Kyle Yount, host of the Godzilla podcast, Kaiju Cast. New episodes come out every Sunday on iTunes, on Stitcher, and at rachelandmiles.com. Check out rachelandmiles.com for all kinds of extra content, episode companion posts, essays, fan art, X-Men evolution recaps, and much, much more. Our podcast, as we said before, is totally listener-supported and ad-free and is made possible by our generous Patreon subscribers. If you'd like to become one of those folks, check out the link at the top of rachelandmiles.com. Next week, the Avengers, the X-Men, and the Soviet super-soldiers all want a piece of Magneto. As we dive into the X-Men vs. Avengers miniseries. No, not, not that one. The other one. 